Chapter 2, Part 1 of A Magician Among the Spirits by Harry Houdini. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Part 1 The Davenport Brothers. Such evidence of spirits as the simple wrappings of the Fox sisters soon gave place to a more elaborate manifestations and with the appearance of Ira Erastus Davenport and his brother William Henry Harrison Davenport, working together and known as the Davenport Brothers, these manifestations became complicated exhibitions involving the use of a cabinet, rope tricks, bells, and various horns and musical instruments. These brothers have always been, and are still, pointed to as being indisputable proof of the reality and genuineness of mediumistic phenomena and public interest in spiritualism was greatly stimulated by the tremendous sensation and discussion caused by their demonstrations. Yet an interesting train of circumstances put me in possession of facts more than sufficient to disprove their having or even claiming spiritualistic power. During many of the years in which I have been making a study of spiritualism, I supposed both of the Davenports dead, and when my friend Harry Keller, in recounting some of his early experiences and hardships, told me that he had been associated with them at one time, and that Ira Davenport was still living, I was surprised indeed. I at once communicated with him, and there followed a pleasant acquaintance which lasted until his death and furnished me with much of the historic value concerning the brothers which has never appeared in print. Heretofore, all published accounts of the Davenport brothers' doings have been vague, speculative, lacking in actual knowledge, and misleading because the authors have been victims of delusion, but the information here given is based on a long correspondence with Ira Davenport, as well as an open-hearted confession which he made to me shortly before his death, answering all my questions unreservedly and offering to assist me in every way he could as he wanted my statements to be accurate in the book on spiritualism which he knew I was writing. The Davenport brothers were devotedly attached to each other, and when in 1877 William died while they were in Australia, Ira, the surviving brother, was completely upset. He made one feeble attempt to reinstate himself, but the spirit was lacking, and he returned, a discouraged man, to spend the remainder of his days in peace and quiet at home. While playing Australia early in 1910 for Harry Rickards, I hunted up the grave of William Davenport, and finding it sadly neglected, I had put it in order, fresh flowers planted on it, and the stonework repaired. It was also on this trip that I met William M. Fay of Davenport Brothers and Fay, who told me many interesting things about the brothers, 
and on my return to America, one of the first things which I did was to go to Maysville, Chautauqua County, New York, to make Ira Davenport a visit. He met me at the station and took me to his home, an exceptionally happy and restful one, presided over by the second Mrs. Davenport, the first having died in childbirth. This second marriage was most romantic. During a seance which the brothers were giving in Paris, Ira noticed a strikingly beautiful Belgian girl intently watching him. After the performance, he managed to meet her, only to find that she could not speak a word of English. His French being limited to the usual two- or three-word table d'hôte vocabulary of the average American tourist, he called his interpreter and, through him, asked the girl to become his wife. Bewildered by such an audacious proposal, she blushed deeply and cast down her eyes, then, slowly raising them, looked straight into Ira's. There was a quick exchange of admiration, and her woman's intuition must have read deeply and correctly, for she then and there consented to wed this American who had so unconventionally asked her to be his wife, a decision which she never had occasion to regret, for they were a remarkably happy couple. In the tranquil atmosphere of his porch, we turned back the pages of time, Mr. Davenport reliving in retrospect the trials, battles, praise, and applause of long ago. Among other things, we talked over the magical mystery performers of other days, which led him to say very generously, Houdini, you know more about the old timers and my arguments than I who lived through those troublesome times. He said that he recognized in me a past master of the craft, and therefore spoke openly, and did not hesitate to tell me the secrets of his feats. We discussed and analyzed the statements made in his letters to me, and he frankly admitted that the work of the Davenport brothers was accomplished by perfectly natural means— and belonged to that class of feats commonly credited to physical dexterity. Not once was there even a hint that spiritualism was of any concern to him, instead discussing his work as straightforward showmanship. For me, it was a memorable day, and did not end with the setting of the sun, for we talked far into the night— I, with notebook in hand, he with a long piece of rope, initiating me into the mysteries of the real Davenport tie, which converted thousands to a belief in spiritualism and was the genesis of the rope-tying stunts which gave such a stimulus to spiritualistic discussion in connection with the brothers. Though many attempts were made to imitate it, to the best of my knowledge and belief, no one, not even the magical fraternity, was ever able to detect the methods used in these famous rope tricks, the secret being guarded so carefully that Ira Davenport's children did not know it. I have tested it 
and for uses such as they made of it, I consider it one of the best rope ties in existence today. And it is only because I want it on record when I eventually pass to the beyond that I am explaining to the public the modus operandi, which was as follows. Built into either side of the cabinet used by the Davenports was a bench through which two holes had been bored a little distance apart. The brothers seated themselves on these benches, and opposite one another, with their feet squarely on the floor in front of them. The end of the rope was passed around the legs of one of the brothers, close up by the knees and tied. The rope was then wound around the legs several times, fastened at the ankles, the remaining portion carried straight across the cabinet to the other brother's ankles, fastened, wound about his legs, and tied at the knees. A shorter piece of rope was then tied to each of their wrists with the knots lying next to the pulse. These ropes were threaded through the holes and the wrists drawn down to the benches and the ends of the ropes fastened to the ankles. Their method of releasing themselves was comparatively simple. While one extended his feet, the other drew his in, thus securing slack enough in the wrist ropes to permit working their hands out of the loops. The second brother was released by reversing the action. After the demonstrations were completed, the brothers slipped their hands back into the loops from which they had drawn them, placed their feet in the original positions, and were ready to be examined. When the cabinet was opened, the ropes appeared as taut as when put on by the committee. In order to disprove the frequently made claim that the Davenports left their benches to produce certain manifestations, they asked investigating committees to place sheets of paper under their feet and mark around them with pencil or crayon, thus making it seemingly impossible to move a foot without detection. But this in no way interfered or hindered in their performance for Ira told me they used to slide their feet, paper and all, and still keep the feet inside the marks, a method I can vouch for as being practical, for I have tried it successfully. With the advantage of working together, it was simply impossible to secure both of the brothers in such a manner as to prevent their producing the expected results. If one was in trouble, the other was always ready to come to the rescue, for no matter how securely the committee tied them, one was sure to be more loosely tied than the other, and could get a hand free to reach over and help. There was one chance in twenty million to hold us both at the same time, Ira told me. The Davenport's strictest test was known as the tie around the neck. This was also explained to me by Ira. A committee of three was called upon, one of whom was a woman, and for that reason the least suspected, although in reality a confederate. She and the Davenports were each in turn tied around the neck. The woman released herself by cutting the rope. 
Hiding the pieces in her bloomers, she performed her share of the manifestations and retied herself with a duplicate piece of rope. No one was the wiser, for so curiously allied are our five senses, that the committee, bereft of its sight while such dark deeds were being done, seemed to have lost the use of its reasoning power as well. The first of the Davenport's public performances were given in a large hall with rows of seats for the audience and a small raised platform which served as a stage. Someone, thinking to prevent the possibility of assistance by visitors or confederates in the audience, asked if it were possible to have the manifestations occur in a closet. Receiving an affirmative answer, one was built with openings large enough to insert the spirit hands. This closet was a decided advantage to the brothers, as it gave them an opportunity to work in total darkness, which was an essential element of their performance. The closet was improved upon by placing a big box in the center of the stage, and there gradually developed the cabinet as we know it today. During that eventful visit, Ira emphatically denied many of the absurd tales and popular beliefs concerning the brothers, among them being the flower test, the snuff test, and such stories as the claim that when a boy at home he gave a seance for his parents and during levitation was raised up until his head touched the ceiling, breaking both lath and plaster that he was once levitated across the Niagara River, a distance of 3,000 yards, and the one telling of his having effected an escape by spiritual means from a prison in Oswego, New York, in 1859. The Davenports were constantly on their guard against surprise and exposure, and Ira explained to me that when they were suspicious of a committee man who wanted to go into the cabinet with them, they would insist that he be tied too in order to prevent the audience from thinking he was a confederate. Fastened to a bench as well as to each of the Davenports, he was absolutely helpless, for while one was getting loose, the other would strain the ropes on the committee man's feet, holding him tight. He also told me that they were in the habit of reserving seats in the front row for their friends as a protection against anyone breaking through. At private circles, they ran a cord through buttonholes on all present, ostensibly to prevent collusion with the medium, but in reality as a protection against a surprise seizure. They once heard that the Pinkerton Detective Agency had been hired to catch them, and in order to effectually forestall any meddler, they had a confederate smuggle in a bear trap, and after the seance room was darkened, set the trap in the aisle. I called Ira's attention to a clipping concerning the dark seances from the London Post, a conservative paper which read, the musical instruments, bells, etc., were placed on the table. The brothers Davenport were then manacled, hands and feet, and securely bound to the chairs by ropes. A chain of communication, 
though not a circular one, was formed, and the instant the lights were extinguished, the musical instruments appeared to be carried all about the room. The current of air, which they occasioned in their rapid transit, was felt upon the faces of all present. The bells were loudly rung, the trumpets made knocks upon the floor, and the tambourine appeared running around the room, jingling with all its might. At the same time, sparks were observed as if passing from south to west. Several persons exclaimed that they were touched by the instruments, which on one occasion became so demonstrative that one gentleman received a knock on the nasal organ which broke the skin and caused a few drops of blood to flow. After I finished reading it, Ira exclaimed, Strange how people imagine things in the dark. Why, the musical instruments never left our hands, yet many spectators would have taken an oath that they heard them flying over their heads. Ira Davenport positively disclaimed spiritualistic power in his talk with me saying repeatedly that he and his brother never claimed to be mediums or pretended their work to be spiritualistic. He admitted, however, that his parents died believing that the boys had superhuman power. In this connection, he told me of a family by the name of Kidder in which the boys faked spiritualistic mediumship. The mother, a simple woman, easily misled, became a confirmed believer. After a time, the boys got tired of the game they were playing and confessed to her that it was all a fake. The shock of the disillusion almost drove her insane, and Iris said it was the fear of a similar result which kept him from confessing to his father the true nature of their work. So when the father asked the boys to do tests for him, they declared that the spirits said no and explained that they could only do what the spirits asked. But if the Davenport brothers did not claim spiritual powers themselves, they nevertheless allowed others to claim them in their behalf. One of the first to do this was J.B. Ferguson, variously known as Mr., Rev., and Dr., but I have no way of knowing how his titles came to him or just what they represented. If I am not mistaken, he had been a minister in the Unitarian Church. He traveled with the Davenports as their lecturer, a position filled later by Thomas L. Nichols. Ferguson positively believed that everything accomplished by the Davenports was done with the aid of spirits. That both Ferguson and Nichols believed in spiritualism is shown by their writings. Neither of them were disillusioned regarding the spiritual powers of the brothers, the secret of their manifestations being religiously kept from them. Their remarks were left to their own discretion, the Davenports thinking it better showmanship to leave the whole matter for the audience to draw its own conclusion after seeing the exhibition. Then, too, with a minister as a lecturer who sincerely believed the phenomena, many were led to believe, which helped to fill the coffers, meet the expenses, and increase the publicity 
which was a necessary part of the game. End of chapter 2, part 1